Hi, welcome. This is Yolanda and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832-1914. And then um, we're on chapter 22, page 188. And the heading is Missionary Zeal, a Temple and a New Home. And the subheading is Galsburg. I hope you enjoy the words of um, President Joseph Smith III, obviously son of Joseph Smith Jr., Thank you for joining me. The year 1880 opened somewhat auspiciously for our ministerial labours. Our memorandum indicates that I left home on January the 10th for a little missionary jaunt, with a first stop at Galsburg, under the administration of Elder Zenus H. Gurley Sr. Some years before, meetings were held in that Kewanee district down as far as Galsburg and Henderson Grove, four miles away. In Galsburg, there was a woman who had been very sick for a number of years, thought to be dying of consumption. Her name was Mary de Spain, and among her acquaintances and neighbours was an aunt of our brother, Edwin Stafford. A conference was held at Henderson Grove, during which Brother Gurley's preaching attract, attracted, excuse me for tripping over my words again, Attracted considerable notice, news of which reached Mrs. Despain. Hopeless of receiving help from medical sources and unwilling to die without further effort to secure benefit, she held a conversation with her neighbour, Elder Stafford's aunt, who offered to send some word to Elder Gurley and see if he would come and administer to the lady, even though she was not a member of the church. Elder Gurley was a kindly, free-hearted man who believed the blessings of God were open to all who sought them in contrition and humility. He expressed his willingness to do as requested, provided Mrs. Despain's husband would give his consent. None of the family of the afflicted woman was connected with the church or claimed any form of religion. In fact, her husband, called Jack, constable and marshal for a number of years, was understood to be a profane man and a pronounced scoffer at church denominations. However, he gave his consent readily enough to the right. A day and hour were set and after due preparation by fasting and prayers of the saints in meeting assembled, the woman received the ordinance of administration. This result in such an extraordinary improvement, let me begin again, this resulted in such an extraordinary improvement in her condition that she insisted on attending the services next Sunday and returned home without ill effect. She accepted baptism, became healthy and strong, an enthusiastic believer and teacher in the church and remained a, dev a devout adherent for many years. Her husband had great regard for his wife and respect of her opinions. While he did not espouse the faith, he allowed members of his family to do so, some three or four of whom, including one son, joined with us. Sister Despain's healing had been so marked and her faith and loyalty so strong that she constantly busied herself in presenting the gospel as she understood it to her friends and neighbours, thus becoming a veritable minister of the good news and pretty well known over the state in her faithful labours. 
In the fall and winter of 1870-1880, there were held in Galsberg some revival meetings under the direction of the celebrated evangelists, as I recall, Reverend Dwight L. Moody and the singer Ira D. Shanky. While this revival was in progress, Sister Despain attended some of the meetings, seeking opportunity to talk to the evangelists. The evangelist. Oh, I'm tripping over my words again. <laughs> Excuse me. Seeking opportunity to talk to the evangelist. I think that is misprint there. And others who would listen about her own church. She asked her husband to accompany her, but she declined, stating that if she, uh, he did go. He would likely be insulted, for he had heard of the methods of appeal used by such men in making converts, some of which were very personal in their nature. She assured him she thought they would be too gentlemanly and sincere for anything like that to occur, and so her husband gave in and went with her. Their experience, but illustrates Robert Burns' apothean, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glee either by the good or ill fortune which sometimes attends the footsteps of men in spite of sister despain's faith in him the evangelist happened to be unusually venomous and persistent that night when the time came for him to make personal appeals and the choir was singing invitingly, the reverend gentleman marched down the aisle, speaking to first one and then another. Finally, he reached our sister and her husband, a man well known to almost everyone in the audience. Placing his hand upon Jack's head, he rudely pushed it backwards, looked down into the man's face and said in a tone to be heard all over the hall, I say you are a sinner, sir. To the surprise of those who knew him, Mr. Despain did not break out in his usual rough language, nor did he rise belligerently to his feet. Instead, he said quietly, I know that, sir. Still keeping a hand on his head, the evangelist repeated a bit more emphatically and spectacularly, Again, I say it, sir, you are a sinner. Again, Despain replied, his temper in control. Yes, sir, I know I'm a sinner. Kindly go on about your business and leave me alone. Sister Despain had been pale with alarm, greatly fearing her husband would retaliate with violence and cause a scene. To her relief, nothing of the sort happened, and they stayed in the close of the service. After reaching home, he jerked off his collar as if he had experienced a choking sensation and turned to her abruptly said, Now, Mary, I went to that meeting tonight to please you and because you assured me the evangelist was a gentleman who would not insult anyone. I had my doubts and the events proved I was right. I know I am not religious. I have been a rough man all my life, but I know what decent treatment in public is. Never ask me again to go to any of these protracted revival meetings i will not go i will go with you however to the services of your own church people and from that this time on will help you to advertise them and to entertain the elders when they come i will supply you with means so far as we can afford to help your church from time to time i shall try to to restrain my temper to quit using profane language
sorry, getting a little bit emotional. He's putting a bit of effort in here. We like effort. <laughs> to quit using profan profane language and to overcome my other thoughts that distress you. But I have no sympathy or fellowship with these hypocritical revivalists, such as I believe this one is, whose meeting we have just attended. And I don't want to have anything whatever to do with him. When I reached Galsbury that January day, I found my meeting had been well advertised through the efforts of this sturdy man and others. I was greeted with a good audience who listened attentively to my message. While in the city, I was a guest at the Despain home and treated very cordially. My stay, my stay was not a long one, for arrangements had been made for me to visit under the directions of Elder Joseph A. Crawford, then presiding over the String Prairie District, the branches of String Prairie, Farmington, Kukuk, Montrose, Rock Creek, Burnside, Colchester and Carthage, providing proper places could be secured in all those places. My seal... My zeal for occupying a pulpit burned brightly in those days. This may appear quixotic to some. I do not know what that word is. But I can only confess that it had indeed taken a great hold upon my mind. I was enthusiastically eager to use every possible opportunity to resent my message to the public. Next heading, Burnside. I spent a few days at Burnside, the village nearest to the home of Aunt Catherine Salisbury and those of her sons Solomon, Alvin, Don Carlos and Frederick. Her daughter Lucy had married a blacksmith by the name of Duke, a man perhaps twice as old as she. This marriage was an unfortunate affair for though she had made a friend, a friendly impression upon the family, he proved to be a reckless and roistering fellow. unfitted to make her happy. After his death, she made a second venture in matrimony, which proved as unsuccessful as the first, for she married a man as of much the same type with whom, at the time of my visit, she was living in Burlington, where she resided, where also resided her only son, Jack. On arriving at Burnside, I found that brother Willington McGrahan and his brother Thomas not then a member, had been promised the use of the Christian church, a small frame building, very neat and well located. However, by the time I reached the place, the travelling elder in charge of the affairs of that church had become alarmed and had cancelled the promise, a proceeding that was not new in my experience then, nor for the last time observed. The move aroused considerable indignation among our people. Thomas McGahan immediately secured an abandoned store building and converted it into a meeting place by cleaning it up and placing chairs and benches. A local dealer, kindly furnished lumber and seats, were arranged to accommodate several hundred persons. I spoke there for three evenings to audiences which filled the place. Burnside was located near the centre of an area which, during the days of Joseph and Hiram Smith, had been occupied by many church members. 
Quite a number of these were still living in different parts of the country, on farms and in the little adjacent villages. They came out in goodly numbers to here and gave me generous support. The effort which had been exerted against our meetings and the hostile attitude of the minister mentioned had created a sensation among non-members also, which resulted in there being an unusually large number present at our gatherings, thus affording us really a better hearing than we might otherwise have secured. How inscrutable are the ways of God and the power by which he can turn evil into good. My topics were confined to usual gospel themes. The Christian minister and a number of his members had been outspoken in their condemnation of what they were pleased to call Mormonism and injudiciously had alleged that we of the reorganised church were nothing but Mormons who would teach and practice polygamy if we dared to do so and if the law were not against him. Not caring to concern myself with these allegations, I presented our views in an affirmative manner only. An amusing incident occurred on the second night of my effort. The building was crowded and I was having considerable liberty in presenting our views. At one point I touched the subject of the official organisation of the church for purpose of spiritual works and the establishment of the apostolic quorum as set out in the New Testament. Just then there came a sudden crashing sound like the breaking of timber. It came from the section where the seats were formed of planks. I looked up just in time to see a whole row of people dumped onto the floor. It seems that what had happened was that the Christian minister who had been sitting there had become so disturbed over the position I had assumed and was sustaining in such an indisputable manner by citations and arguments that in high displeasure he had arisen to leave the room, the people in his vicinity craning the necks to watch his dramatic departure had brought some unusual strain upon the temporary seating arrangement and the supporting timber at the side gave way and planks and people were precipitated to the floor with a bang naturally a moment of diversion followed the upset listeners scrambling to their feet and attendants trying to rearrange the seat all with what annoyance embarrassment or merriment was peculiar to their individual temperaments It is a bit amusing. When the commotion subsided, I proceeded to pay my respects to the good Christian brother who had refused us the use of a better building and who could not stay to listen to my uh, discourse, but remarking that I truly had not realised my arguments would be so upsetting as to disturb the very seats upon which they were sitting. I added that I hoped that they hoped they would absolve me from having had any designs upon those material foundations, even if I had launched some deliberate attacks upon their spiritual ones and had tried to knock all the props from under their eco-elastical structure that I could. Rumours of the incident and my application of it spread about town next day, and on the third and closing evening we had an even larger congregation of attentive listeners than before. Next heading, Colchester. From Burnside, I went to Colchester, where I lived. I will begin again. I have jumped over my tongue again. 
From Burnside, I went to Colchester, where lived the family of my uncle and aunt, Arthur and Lucy Milliken. The group included a number of boys and girls, bright young men and women, with whom I was glad to renew contacts. My cousin Arthur managed to obtain the use of the Christian church there and assured me the local congregation of that faith, largely composed of Scotch, English and Welsh miners, were very friendly and intent upon hearing me. The minister in charge resided at Macomb, a few miles east, and he had interposed his authority to try to prevent this courtesy being extended to me. But the local people had refused to yield to his demand, declaring they had promised the building, were anxious to hear what I had to say, and were determined I should occupy it at least as long as they had agreed. I preached morning and evening of the Sunday I was there. In the audience, as I learned at its close, was a young man named Hannah. He was son of the Reverend Richard Hannah, who presided over the Methodist Episcopal Conference, which included Nauvoo at the time I was living there. I believe this young man was named Richard also. He attended two of my services, one on Sunday and one on a week evening and showed an intelligent interest in what I presented. He came and introduced himself to me, saying that his father had often spoken of me as my mother, of my stepfather and the Weidman family he had known at Canton. This young man said that his father used to tell laughingly and with considerable enjoyment how as a young man I used to attend his meetings and how considering me one who stood high in the community and also along with the rest of my family high in his regard he had once broached to me the subject of my uniting with his church when I declined he pressed me for a reason saying I was a good moral young man took an interest in their temperance work, was a frequent attendant at their public services, and he did not see why I should object to joining them. I had replied, and this was what amused the gentleman, that I couldn't join his church because I didn't believe the doctrine he preached, especially that doctrine of hellfire, the blind elder Macomb, the local pastor, and and he all professed to believe. The son declared the Reverend Hannah had enjoyed the way I had stood up and answered him so frankly and so firmly defended my position and he often related the circumstances to others. I remembered the incident. It had occurred at the Nauvoo house in the presence of my stepfather. I was glad to meet this young man, Hannah, and to hear from his father in that way. When he mentioned that he intended to write and tell his father that he had seen me, I asked him to convey to that good gentleman my regards and to say I remembered him with a great deal of pleasure. It may be well to add here that a little while after this visit to Colchester, a number of saints gathered at Plano and Sandwich to travel together to the full conference and reunion in western Iowa. It's so happened that our special car was taken on by the regular train on which there was a car field with Methodist people going home from a regional conference over which this Reverend Richard Hannah had presided. Hearing that I was on board the train, he came back to our car to greet me and to insist that I go forward with him and meet his friends. I first introduced... I first 
introduced him to some of our people and then accompanied him into the car where his friends were. He was apparently well esteemed among his associates and was then a man in his 80th year, strong and hearty. He seemed to take great pleasure in introducing me to his friends and to tell them I was the boy who had had the courage to tell the Reverend Hannah, presiding out of the Mendota ME conference, that he did not believe the doctrine the Reverend Gentleman preached. He related the circumstances for the entertainment of his friends, laughing heartily at the recollection and giving me a high recommendation for soberness, uprightness of character and fearlessness in stating my opinions. He bore an excellent testimony to the character of my mother and of our family at Nauvoo. And what was more significant to me, stated that he had watched with a good deal of interest the course I had taken in regard to the religious questions that had beset me and heartily commended me for the wisdom I had displayed. He told me his son had written him, mentioning the fact that he had attended my service and could not just justly find fault with my position regarding the New Testament gospel or the arguments by which I had maintained it. Reverend Hannah was known during the war of the rebellion as the fighting chaplain of the 116th Illinois Regiment, which will give my readers an idea of his nature. He was of the sturdy, backwards, knock down and drag em out type of argumentative preacher like Peter Cooper. I once had an evidence of his vigorous handling of a situation. It occurred at one of his services in Nauvoo. Some unruly young chap had torn the ear flaps from a fur cap and by using a bent pin had hung one on the back of the local preacher's coat between the shoulders in such a way as to allow it to dangle comically from side to side. After having been down among the young men in the congregation, exhorting and trying to rough them to the call of obedience, Mr. Happily had walked back to his place on the platform, the fur appendage swinging saucily with his rather waddling gait, a spectacle which naturally caused a wave of hilarity to sweep over the young folks. Reverend Hannah was in the stand, and catching sight of the swaying flap pinned on the brother's coat, he fiercely snatched it off, and with vindictive glares and almost caustic tongue, denounced the unknown prankster, used in no uncertain gentle terms. I was sorry, of course, that the local elder, whom I respected, had been treated so rudely, but I could not approve of the terrible denunciation which Reverend Hannah poured forth upon the culprit. It was the memory of what he had said on that occasion that helped me later to tell him frankly I did not like the hellfire doctrine he and his friends were so fond of preaching. In 1847, Reverend William Hannah was stationed at Nauvoo. He was quite a different type of man from his brother Richard. He was sedate and intellectual and not so fierce and empathetic in his condemnation of the sinner. It was he who performed the marriage ceremony for my mother and Major Bideman in December of that year. This recital may perhaps be fittingly closed 
by stating that after I went to live in Plano, I happened to meet on the main street of Sandwich one day, my old friend Mr Happily, and a companion. He had come over from a station on the Rock Island Ro Railroad, intending to call on me at Plano. I was glad to see him again, and we had an agreeable, though short, conversation. I never saw him again, for shortly afterwards, as he was crossing a railroad track in returning to his home, he was run down by a fast train and killed. To return to my missionary effort at Colchester, in speaking at some length on the subject of the miraculous gifts of the gospel, a rather stormy condition resulted. The explanation I gave of the 12th chapter of Corinthians and the 4th chapter of Ephesians and my arguments upon the general nature of faith seemed to gain the approval of certain thoughtful people. One Sunday school teacher in the Christian church enthusiastically endorsed my views and agreed that God had blessed these gifts and was alone responsible for their being in the church that honest men should either accept them and obey their leadings or acknowledge that they, the honest seekers, had not yet found the true church of Christ. Some of the fellow churchmen of this teacher became so wrought upon over his opinions that they made it an open question as to his standing with them and it was decided to exclude him from his office in their Sunday school. He answered them in the substance. I have read the chapters Elder Smith cited and find that these gifts were placed in the Church of Christ just as he said they were and I have come to believe as he does that they should be found in the Church claiming to be of Christ. If they are not there then I am justified in believing the claims of that Church are not well founded. I have not found them in the church which I have been representing and therefore I have come to the conclusion it cannot be the church patterned after the one Christ established or one which is accepted by him. He remained steadfast in these views, I was told, up to the time of his death some two years later. The controversy, This controversy among themselves seemed to gain friends for our organisation even though it resulted in my being finally excluded from the use of their building. I was invited to deliver a temperance lecture in a hall frequently used by a number of miners in a sort of lyceum organisation. The address was delivered was the address delivered was very well received, and I was thankful quite warmly and I was thanked quite warmly by a number of influential people of the congregation. Next heading, Carthage. By agreement with Elder Crawford, he and my cousins Solomon and Don Salisbury secured for my use the courthouse at Carthage, the county seat. This hall I occupied on the evenings of January the 16th and 17th and twice on, twice on Sunday the 18th. Elder Crawford was in charge, with cousin Solomon associated with him, and Elder Richard Lambert from the Rock Creek branch, ten miles east of Nauvoo. Solomon and Don had accompanied me to Carthage, and also cousin Don Millican, 
As we started out, I was driving a horse hitched to a sulky, but the weather was cold, the ground frozen and very hard. I, a rather heavy man, and had perhaps none too strong a vehicle. At any rate, not far from Colchester, with all the weight and jolting and jarring, the sulky broke down, and I had to mount the horse for the rest of the journey to Carthage, my first ride on horseback in quite a number of years. When I reached the, con the county seat, I was domiciled at the home of Mr. I. Wiley, brother-in-law of Elder Crawford, where I was very courteously and kindly entertained, and my stay made very pleasant. One evening was spent in the home of my old lawyer friend, Hooker, who also treated me very kindly. Previous to coming, I had thought a great deal about this contemplated effort at Carthage and had speculated considerably, remembering my father's death in the jail there. The causes, as I understood them, which had led up to that tragic event, all the trials and difficulties which ensued, the later occupants of the county, the legal affairs at Carthage taken over, by many who had been at enmity with my father and the church he sponsored, and perhaps over and above all the public op opposition to me which had once been shown in that city. I constantly asked myself the questions, how would I be received? What course should I pursue in my discourse there? Would the people listen to me? I had known every principled, I had known every principal man of business there, when I left the county in 1866, but 14 years was sufficient to bring many changes and to alter materially the aspect of conditions and attitudes. Many of the lawyers I had known were still occupying there, notably George Edmonds, always a friend of our family, and his partner, William C. Hooker, a southern man, once a boarder at our hotel in Nauru. I believe, however, that David Mack, the master in Chancellery of 1860, who had presided over the meeting held that year in Carthage, whose, when some of the citizens passed resolutions hostile to me, was dead. My questions and apprehensions received an answer on the very first night, when I was face to face with a splendid audience, excellently attentive from first to last, and from which I received a uniformly friendly consideration during the week nights, more men came out, but on Sunday there were mixed audiences, some being saints from surrounding branches and localities. On Sunday I was assisted by Brother Lambert, and as nearly as memory recalls, I preached strenuously that doctrine which, in the resolutions just mentioned, was called Mormonism, but which, of course, bore no resemblance to the Mormonism which they had, a score of years before, so strongly denounced. As completely as time permitted, I presented our claim of present and direct revelation from God to man, the institution of the Church in 1830, the revelation of the Book of Mormon, and the fundamental doctrines of the Church as pertaining to man's salvation. At the close, many came up and offered warm congratulations on my having conducted the services in a fair and affirmative way, free from accusation. 
rancor or bitterness. They told me I had given them a better understanding of our teachings as a church than they had ever obtained before. I believe my effort helped to remove prejudice in that locality. However, my readers may contemplate the situation in which I had found myself and may faintly imagine the nature of the flood of thought and feeling which swept over me in spite of which I had tried to keep myself calm and serene in the strength of one who is master of his own soul. The outcome was one which seemed to impress me anew with the wisdom of the council. Talk not for judgment, boast not of mighty faith, but carefully gather together, etc. We were striving to teach the truthful and precious things contained in the Bible, the Book of Mormon and the revelations to the church, and felt, therefore, that we had no occasion to fear the results. On the Monday evening following, I spoke at Shakarag Schoolhouse, near where my cousin lived, and on the 20th returned to his to my home. Thinking over the situation, I feel I must give Elder Crawford a just tribute by putting on record the facts concerning him as I understand them to be. While he was president of the Nauvoo district, he tried constantly to discharge his duty as an elder. Later, he fell into unfortunate controversy with the officials, with the officers and members of the church at Farmington and Vincennes, and in dealing with certain businessmen who he failed to keep his obligations, either from inability or from intent to defraud. Through this conduct he forfeited the confidence of his brethren which caused him and some of his family to finally withdraw from the church in high dungeon in high dungeon for a time he made strong war against us and threatened me with legal prosecution because as editor of the herald i had published therein the proceedings of the church against him when he was disfellowshipped Afterwards, he became an agitator among the miners' unions of Illinois, effecting organizations and otherwise busying himself in their contentions. Finally, he passed into the great beyond, perhaps unconscious to the last that he had been his own greatest enemy. Next heading, Kirtland Temple. It was in the year of 1880 that the church consummated the proposition to secure title to the temple at Kirtland and authorised the bishop to institute proceedings in the courts of the land looking to that end. As I had first seen the building in 1866, it was badly dilapidated and in sad want of repair, though still being used at times. No apparent attention had been paid to it for a number of years, and then after receiving sanction from John E. Page, then residing in central Illinois, a form of church organisation was affected by one Zadok Brooks, who went thither with a number of old-time malcontents and others and attempted a resettlement. There were some 
newer converts with them, among them the Russell Huntley of DeKalb, whom I have already mentioned, a man of considerable means which made him quite an asset in the undertaking. When his religious fever, fever subsided and the flock he had gathered at Kirtland was broken and scattered, Elder Brooks disposed of his interests there and drifted south, finishing his career, I was informed, as a retail vendor of spirituous liquids in whom, in what was then termed a grocery, but would now be called a saloon. A number of the old saints survived the crash and remained in Kirtland and vicinity. Huntley returned to his former home in DeKalb, where I first became acquainted with him some time later. He had perhaps become a convert to Mormonism in the abstract, but aside from the baptism administered by Brooks, he had evidently made little study of the doctrine and seemed to have little or no knowledge of the foundation, principles and theories of our faith. He had had some conversations with Elder William E. McLennan at Kirtland and with one Van Dusen and a few others, but none seemed able to give much reasonable account of their own religious attitudes or beliefs, much less guide him in shaping his. A family of Calhouns and a young man named Warren claiming to perpetuate the church established by Brooks wandered up into Wisconsin where I met them at Burlington and was sharply rebuked by Warren for stepping in as he declared to deprive him of his right to leadership. My answer was, I have no knowledge of your having a call from God, but I do know you are doing nothing. If you have the right to act, you certainly are not exercising it. I know what I was commanding to do, commanded to do, and I am trying to do it. But if I find you have the right to lead the church, and that I am preventing you from accomplishing God's promises, I will frankly acknowledge it and get out of your way. On your part, you should either unite with us or go ahead yourself. Until you do the one or the other, please keep out of my way. <laughs> what became of Warren, I know not, but Calhoun united with us and lived faithful to his baptism covenant until his death. Huntley, after his return to DeKalb, met members of our church, among them Elder Mark H. Forscutt, for whom he learned to cherish a good deal of friendship, as well as for my brother Alexandra and myself. Sometime later, while stationed in St. Louis, Brother Forscutt organised a cooperative company to do business in the Green Grocery Line. He secured some 12 or 15 members who subscribed $100 each. Among these were Alexander Fife, a Scotchman, and Joseph A. Betts. The company was formed, officers chosen from among the subscribers, a building rented, a delivery wagon purchased, and the enterprise launched with flying banners. Brother Forscott was installed as business manager with an assistant employed to put up orders and make deliveries. I knew nearly all the men who were 
stockholders in this movement and took considerable interest in watching the development of the experiments, anxiously desiring its success while fearing its failure. Some little time after its organisation, I visited St. Louis and called upon Elder Foscott. I found him in their store, quite a large brick building located a little out from the business section, busily engaging, engaged in handling his trade. He explained some of the details of the enterprise to me, which caused me to feel impressed that the venture would not be a success. To me, it seemed that the rental of that building outside the business area, $600 a year, the purchase of a delivery outfit at 400 and the equipment of an office at over 100 and the employment of a manager at $75 a month, plus a salary of an assistant, presented a combination of overhead expenses as a company organ organised with a capital of twelve to $1,500 would not be able to carry for a very long time. I was not in a position, however, to offer any advice or suggestions, or to find fault with its management, for I had nothing to do with it. Within six months, the venture failed and several people were rendered disconsolate over the outcome. The story of this attempted cooperative business is a matter aside from that which I started to tell about the church endeavouring to obtain the title to the Temple of Kirtland, except for a connection or two which will appear. Huntsley, having become convinced that his efforts in Kirtland were unavailing and accomplishing nothing, had turned over to Brother Foscott, my brother Alexander and myself, the title to the temple which he had received from Brooks. Following this failure of St. Louis at St. Louis, certain members of the cooperative company thought that either we or the church should refund to them the money which they had lost in the enterprise, claiming that the failure was due to Brother Foscott's mismanagement. That sentiment was a pull upon us in one direction. Then from Bishop Rogers and others came strong importunities to make the title of the temple property over to the church. Outright, this Alexander and I refused to do. For reasons we thought good, Brother Forscott remaining passive in the matter. Soon as effort was made by the school directors in the Kirtland vicinity to buy the temple for school purposes, and we were waited upon by a committee with their proposals, the spokesman, a Mr Carpenter, was accompanied by a director named Makepeace. In considering their proposition... We set out on foot an investigation into the legal status of the whole matter and became more satisfied than ever that neither Elder Foscott, Alexander nor I held personal title to the property at all and that if title inured to anybody it would be to me as president of the church which as we claimed was the lawful successor of the one which had built it 
We refused, therefore, to either sell or give quick claim title to the school directors. At the conference, we were again presented with the idea it was our duty to make the title over to the church and were strongly urged to that step. I held my ground, absolutely refusing to move in that direction and stating emphatically that the church could secure such title only at the end of a lawsuit. I could see that to assume ownership, such as would be implied, were we to execute a deed of transfer, would be to lay ourselves open to a contest involving the channel through which we had come into possession, viz. through Mr Huntley. I much prefer to have our, our right to the property acknowledged by the courts through our claims, viz. that our organisation as a church was the true successor to the one which originally held the property. Whether or not many others saw the reasons and object of my long and steady refusal, I do not know, but the bishopric did see it, and the result was, as I have said, authority from the conference to proceed in the courts of Ohio with a suit to quiet the disputed title. To this suit, the Utah Church and some individuals who had possession of portion of the original tract were made parties. It resulted, as it is well known, in the title being found to belong to the reorganised church as the lawful successor to the one organised April 6, 1830. The decision, as made by Judge Shearman, Shearman is as follows. In court of common pleas, Lake County, Ohio, February 23rd, 1880, present Honourable S. L. S. Sherman, Judge F. Payne, Jr. Clark, and C. F. Morley, Sheriff. Journal entry, February term, 1880, the reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, plaintiff against Lucian Williams, Joseph Smith, Sarah F. Vidian, Mark H. Forscutt, the church in Utah of which John Taylor is president and commonly known as the Mormon Church, and John Taylor, president of said Utah church defendants. Now at this term of the court came the plaintiff by its attorneys, E. L. Kelly and Burroughs and Bosworth, and the defendants came not but came not but made default and thereupon with the assent of the court and on motion and by the consent of the plaintiff a trial by jury is waived and this cause is submitted to the court for trial and the cause came on for trial to the court upon the pleadings and evidence and was argued by counsel on consideration wherefore the court do find as matters of fact first that notice was given to the defendants in this action for publication of notice as required by the statutes of the state of ohio except as to the defendant sarah f vidian who was personally served with proceeds 
process. Two, that there was organised on the 6th day of April 1830 at Palmyra in the state of New York by Joseph Smith, a religious society under the name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which in the same year removed in a body and located in Kirtland Lake County, Ohio, which said church held and believed and was founded upon certain well-defined doctrines which were set forth in the Bible, Book of Mormon and Book of Doctrine and Covenants. Three, that on the 11th day of February, A.D. 1841, one William Marks and his wife, Rosanna, by warranty deed of that date, conveyed to said Joseph Smith a sole trustee in trust for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, being the same church organised as aforesaid. The lands and tenements described in the, the petition and which are described as follows. The description of the land is omitted, AA, and upon said lands, said church had erected a church edifice known as the temple and were then in the possession and occupancy thereof for religious purposes and so continued until the, the disorganisation of said church which occurred about 1844 that the main body of said religious society had removed from Kirtland aforesaid and were, re, uh, were located at Nauvoo, Illinois in 1844 when said Joseph Smith died and said church was disorganised and the membership then being estimated as about 100,000 scattered to smaller in smaller fragments each claiming to be the original and true church before named and located in different states and places that one of said fragments estimated at 10,000 removed to the territory of Utah under the leadership of Brigham Young and located there and with accessions since now constitute the church in Utah under the leadership and presidency of John Taylor and is named as one of the defendants in this action but after the departure of said fragments of said church for Utah a large number of the officials and membership of the original church, which was disorganised at Nauvoo, reorganised under the name of Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And on the 5th day of February, 1873, became incorporated under the laws of the state of Illinois. And since that time, all other fragments of said original church, except that one in Utah, have dissolved and the membership has largely become incorporated with said reorganised church, which is the plaintiff in this action. That the said plaintiff, the reorganised church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is a religious society founded and organised upon the same doctrines and tenets, and having the same church organisation as the organisation, as the original church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
organised in 1830 by Joseph Smith and was organised pursuant to the constitution, laws and usages of said original church and has branches located near Illinois, Ohio and other states. That the church in Utah, the defendant of which John Taylor is president, has materially and largely departed from the faith, doctrines, laws, ordinances and usages of said original Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has incorporated into its system of faith the doctrines of celestial marriage and plurality of wives and the doctrine of Adam God worship contrary to the laws and constitution of said orig original church. And the court do further find that said defendants, Joseph Smith, Sarah F. Bidion and Mark Hay Forscott are in possession of said property under a pretended title derived from a pretended sale thereof made by order of the probate court of Lake County on the petition of Henry Holcomb as the administrator of said Joseph Smith as the individual property of said Smith and the court finds that said Smith had no title to said property except as the trustee of said church and that no title thereto passed to the purchasers as said sale and that said parties in possession have no legal title to said property and the court further finds that the legal title to said property is vested in the heirs of said Joseph Smith in trust for the legal successor of said original church and that the plaintiffs are not in possession thereof. And the court do further find that the plaintiff, the reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the true and lawful continuation of and successor to the said original Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, organised in 1830 as, and is entitled in law to all its rights and property. Whatever animadversion may have been passed upon its elder and me for what was called our obduracy, in this matter was removed by the discovery that we had taken the only way to forever and completely justify the church in the position it claimed in relation to the original organisation and its rights to the title and dispute. I may add that the building has been adequately repaired by the reorganisation, appropriately restored and furnished and remains today as a place of prayer and praise one of our most treasured possessions end of section i'm going to leave that there this is page 193 i will um begin a missionary fund in the next episode thank you for listening wasn't that exciting